As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. The Phil Hay Show. Welcome to the show, which is brought to you by The Athletic and The Square Ball. I'm Dan Moylan. Hello. And from The Athletic, Phil Hay. Hello. And from The Square Ball, Michael Normanson. Hello. Get in touch with the show via the new Twitter account at the Phil Hay Show. We would love to hear from you. And right now, you can subscribe to the Athletic for that special price of three ninety nine a month for six months, forty percent off the full price of a subscription, where you get all the great analysis, in depth features from the very best football writers around, including ad free versions of all our podcasts. To what's in it this week, Phil? We've been doing a lot of writing about a year on since stadiums closed and um, and crowds went home and and didn't come back. I mentioned on the podcast last week that I'd interviewed uh, Leeds fan Aidan Walton who lost his dad um, a month after the the shutdown and and was just talking about the fact that when he goes back to Ellen Road he'll, he'll be there without him and you know it'd be be something very very strange and and quite hard to to get used to. Uh, we've also got a piece this week on Malik Wilkes, um, ex Leeds United academy player who. Um, scored his 20th goal for Hull this this week and has had a difficult life and various challenges in his upbringing um, and uh, a really good and interesting backstory there. Um, so that's all online if anybody wants to read. And if you want to read that, then head to theathletic.com forward slash leads pod to get that special 40% discount. Theathletic.com forward slash leads pod. Last week we feared defeat at West Ham and it ultimately came at the London Stadium. It, it didn't feel like we really had the rub of the green on the night, but that aside, did we actually learn anything from this game? Or do you think it just simply highlighted existing weaknesses, like namely like the failure to take chances and set pieces? Like London, bloody London, really, isn't it? Fulham away has to be the one for this, surely, two weeks' time. And I, and I know that I'm, I'm tempting fate badly, not even two weeks, weeks' time, tempting fate badly with that. It felt to me very much like the, the Tottenham game, in as much as Leeds played well, I thought, for 20 minutes. Compared to the game against West Ham at Ellen Road, it was far more open. It was a considerably better pitch than the teams had been on up in Leeds back before Christmas. And because it was stretched and because it was there was more space to play in it, it was kind of working to Leeds' favour. And there were advantages for them there in, in the way that Bielsa likes to play and the way they were able to, to kind of stretch West Ham and, and open up some gaps and some, some decent chances early on. But a bit like Tottenham away, the two quick goals and two very soft goals, penalty that, that was a bit needless, ailing sticking his leg in, Goal from a corner, set pieces again, the, the same issue that's been there for Bielsa, not just this season, but but going back a couple of years now. And that feeling at 2-0 that Leeds weren't going to get anything from it. And there were so many chances in the game that they probably should have had something from it. And it was a little bit like the game at Old Trafford where you felt as if it was, you know, there were goals in it anyway, but there should have been countless more because it wasn't as if either side were completely tight and, and tidy at the back but it does just feel a little bit like with this side that from time to time and and we've seen it particularly actually as it happens and coincidentally in London the Arsenal game the Tottenham game now West Ham that it gets away from them early on it gets away from them quite quickly and as much as they are good enough to to pull the game around and and as much as they do have the talent to do that it's asking too much to keep trying time and time again to overcome 2-0 to overcome 4-0 to take yourself from a position where you're up against it and, and to get anything out of the game. So I thought Bielsa was right afterwards in saying that they had enough of the match to deserve something from it. But I felt that, that the way it went did kind of justify the, the result on the night. I felt that it, it played out as West Ham would have wanted it to play out. And and from 2-0, I don't know about you, I, I just didn't feel that a Leeds goal was coming. You've said previously, Michael, actually, you 
can sense early the shape of a game. Do you think you had that sense with this one? Well, we were all over them for the first 10 minutes, weren't we, to be fair? And it was, the chances were there for us to, well, we did take one of them, didn't we? And it was it was ruled out because of a, a bent knee, essentially. I felt that we were in the game for, for the vast majority, really. After after the penalty until half time, it looked like they were going to extend the lead the entire time, more or less, and they were all over us. But then when the second half started, we had that chance from Bamford straight away. And I don't think if that goes in, it does change the complexion of the game completely. And it just felt frustrating because a bit like the Wolves and Villa game, it felt like a game that we should probably have got something from. And the margins are very, very fine in these games. But to have got zero points from those three feels a little bit unfair. It feels like we we should have been due at least two. Yeah, one of those uh, topics that we spoke about on the Squareball podcast earlier in the week, and Phil and I were just chatting about it before we uh, started recording them, was we've almost got to that stage of the season now where we can see what the shortcomings are and we're wishing away the rest of this season now. There's like you know 10 games left or whatever it is. And you almost just want to get to the summer now, make sure we're safe, get some better players in and get excited again about that. And I think part of it is COVID related as well, isn't it? COVID related and the, the total absence of atmospheres and the, the inability for anybody to actually go to the game. So there's not like it's there on the television because absolutely everything is televised at the moment. But in some ways, I, I feel like that's a bit of an issue as well. It, there's a bit of fatigue, I think, with televised football. I, I was writing last week and saying this is like a sort of games console experience as opposed to your, your real life experience of, of actually being there. Um because the you know the talk of Europe and I know it was pretty fanciful, but it that has has petered out now and I, I don't think anybody is, is deluding themselves about about that. You're looking at mid table and um, which would still be an extremely good finish and, and very credible finish. But because that's that's what's there for the taking, that's that's all you're gonna get, that's all people want. It's one of those scenarios now where you almost may as well skip on to May and find yourself finishing tenth or eleventh because all that could happen to make this season interesting is, is Leeds getting sucked in towards the bottom end of the table, which I still don't feel will will happen. I said there that it didn't feel like goals were coming at, at West Ham. Michael's right. There were chances that you expected Leeds to take and that Bamford in particular should have taken. It just felt like one of those evenings where all of those chances, no matter how good they were going to be, and the Rodrigo effort that was sort of scrambled off the line were never going to go in. People always talk about making luck in football and, and making your own luck. I guess West Ham earned that on the basis that when the chances came for them and, and when they had the opportunities to, to get in front and to turn the screw, they, they actually did. And Leeds let them get away from them. As I say, it went back to, to chasing the game as opposed to properly controlling the game. And I did think the game plan was right. You know, I did think from the outset in the first 10 minutes, there was nothing wrong with the, the style of the performance or the, the, the tactical approach. And, and I did think it put a fair amount of pressure on West Ham. But I suspect that in order for Leeds to become a more consistent side and, and to keep moving forward, they're going to have to find a way of, of eradicating these little soft periods where they, they suddenly become a little bit too easy to beat because goals are a, a little bit too cheap. Let's run through some of the um, the things that we talked about last week and some of the incidents of the game. We wondered if um, Costa would retain his place over Jack Harrison. We thought Harrison would come back in and he didn't. Do you think with hindsight and the half-time substitutions, maybe that was the, the wrong decision? I'm still unconvinced by Costa. I mean, he had moments in that game, to be fair, but overall, I'm, I'm just not sure. No, I, I'm in the same position with him. I, th- I think I have been since he signed, to be honest. Uh, it's not that he hasn't had good games and, and he has had periods where he's been a, a pretty keen and, and positive influence, but never to the point where, for example, you look at somebody like Rafinha, who even on, on Monday, I thought he got to the point where he was almost trying too hard to make things happen, but I suspect that was because he was feeling the need to actually make something happen. It, it got to that point. And given that Costa and Rafinha were in the same ballpark in terms of transfer fees, you're seeing a completely different level of output from them. And yeah, on, on Costa, I'm I'm not sold and I'll watch with interest to see what happens with him in the summer. With Harrison, he'd had a couple of very quiet and very flat games. So I don't think there was any argument with the decision to take him out of the team. And that's the whole point of having a squad and having depth and, and having having choice. And I'm not certain that, that that decision alone would have made a difference to the outcome. I'm not sure that having Harrison on that side as opposed to Costa would have eradicated what happened with the, the goals or would necessarily have created better chances than Leeds had already, many of which were, were very decent. I just wonder whether Rodrigo at halftime w- would have been a good call as well to have mixed it up properly in that sense and, and to have added him to the team a little bit earlier on. I mean, he has got to come good again, Rodrigo. You know, they, they've got to get him back into form. They've got to get him playing well again. He's he's had injuries and it has is, it is not helped. But I think he's somebody who you would have expected to have been borderline the star of the show this season. And I, I've been really impressed with him 
when he's played well, but it has been a little bit stop-start. And I think that I think was probably the decision that could have been different and could potentially have altered the game, although I, I did feel like it was going to be West Ham's night. Do you think maybe Rodrigo was just shot on game time though? Because he played a bit in the 23s, but... P- potentially, yeah. Um, and I think, unlike somebody like Calvin Phillips, who literally seems to be able to drop into any game after any type of injury and to play as if he's never been away because he was extremely good on Monday. And I, I think not only... We also spoke about the absence afterwards, how long he'd been away and how impressed he was with Phillips being able to step in like that. But also in the period where he'd been away, he'd obviously lost his, his gran. There'd been the bereavement in the family and it had been a, a very, very difficult period for him. And, and he looks ever more the very, very good quality Premier League player. It might have been the case with, with Rodrigo and, and he had played in the 23s on Friday. Phillips didn't feature in that game. But I imagine it will probably take Rodrigo a little bit longer to get back to the, the type of level that, that Phillips is at. But I think they need him to. I, I think, if truth be told, the only player at the moment who really suits that number 10 role is Rodrigo. What's wrong with Click at the moment? It feels like since we were talking about him earlier in the season and Bielsa was talking him up saying he could play for anyone, he's been fairly awful. That was after the Everton game where I, I, I thought he was really impressive in that. There was a lot of attention on Phillips and deservedly because his passing at Goodison was... Um, phenomenally good, not only in his own half, but in Everton's as well. It was so accurate and, and it was so um, so surgical. But Cleek had a really, really good game that night as well. It was really good at pulling Everton around and linking up play as he does. And I do think his batteries have looked low for a while now. And, you know, he's, he's had this hip injury as well. It's difficult to tell how much that's hindering him. Bielsa has obviously indicated at points that it's been a problem and has substituted him because of it. But I always, with Cleek, I always think about the sheer amount of football that he's played and I know Bielsa doesn't rotate too much in the main or really at all with rare exceptions but he hasn't lent on anybody in the way that he has with Cleek it's it's not just consistent appearances it's consistent starts you know to the point where Cleek has started virtually every league game that Bielsa has, has been in charge of and we're up to up to 119 games with Bielsa um, in the Championship in the Premier League and up to a thousand days with him as um, as manager as well and it's a lot of football and it's a lot of pressure and it'll put a lot of strain on his body and only Cleek could say this for sure and, and I very much doubt he would want to, to expose himself by saying he was tired or by saying that, that he was feeling the pace. But if he is, I don't think you can say it's a surprise because he, his workload has been massive. At least he gets the summer off, eh? <laughs> he does. He does. Yeah, happy days. Chance for a breather. Well, obviously we'll have Rodrigo de Paul in to do some of the heavy lifting next year, you'd assume, yeah? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, if if you can't get him onto a flight and over this summer, I'll be disappointed in your kidnapping skills. Uh, let's talk then about Kiko Casilla, who's been taking some of the headlines this week, despite being a fairly peripheral character at Leeds these days. He didn't make the bench at West Ham, which we know from Bielsa's comments was tactical rather than related to an injury. And then we saw what you might best describe as uh, vague booking albeit on Instagram, where he's posting stuff in Spanish about not coming back and things like that. And yes. it, it was tantamount to somebody, you know, expressing annoyance on Facebook and then one of those you okay hon responses and then DM me. You know, it can't just, come on, you're a grown up, you're a professional athlete, say what you need to say or don't say it at all. Modern life really, isn't it? And modern journalism to an extent as well. We'll come back to this because we're due to see Bielsa in an hour or so and he'll do his um, pre-match presser before the Chelsea game and, and we will ask him about it and we'll we'll see see what he says. I don't know whether he'll go any further than what he said with Hernandez after the, the Leicester game when he was dropped for Palace and just said, look, I, I picked the 18 that I thought would be best for the game, which obviously didn't wash. And we sort of pressed him on that repeatedly, but he, he wasn't wasn't going to bite. But it was clear on Monday that there was no injury to Casilla. It was a, a tactical decision for want of a better word. But what it meant was that you had a, a goalkeeper in Melier starting who was 21. You had a, a goalkeeper on the bench, um, Ilya Capriel, who hasn't even turned 20 yet. I mean, extremely young. Melier is unbelievably young by Premier League standards anyway, but that combination is very, very rare to see two keepers with so so little experience. I think it's been over for Casilla here in real terms since the, the FA charge and, and the suspension, in, in part because Melier has been so good and, and is... Definitely, you know, concrete number one under Bielsa, but also because the the itch with Casilla and the the racism charges has never really been scratched, and there is this definite divide between people who have been patient with him and people who want him to to go from from the club, and and you know which side of the fence I'm on. I think I know which side of the fence you're on as well, 
my understanding is that he is a player that they would they were thinking of of trying to move on in this summer. They they are going to make changes to the squad, and I think he is somebody that they would they would like to replace. But unlike somebody like Tyler Roberts, who has a year to go and will be on a, a fairly modest wage by Premier League standards and probably quite affordable if if Leeds did have to to pay him off to any great degree. Casilla is different. You know, he's on he was on a very high championship wage anyway. There'll have been an uplift and a and a pay rise through the terms of his contract after promotion. And it's an expensive deal to do. It's expensive to to get rid of him, to move him on. Um it, it's not as straightforward as just saying we don't want you here, you can leave. But I, I've never really got the impression that Casilla has enjoyed the last year or so, I think, you know, without defending what went on. I think he has found it very difficult. I think he's found the attention and the, the criticism of him hard to, to deal with. He obviously denied the, the charge against him and, and still does. And I always felt, and I did write this in, in January when he played in, in the Brighton game when Melee had COVID, that it was heading for a, a rather sorry end, really. And and you were watching him and thinking, at some point, you know, you, you're going to have to go. And, and it's very hard to see how in, in the period he's got left, he's, he's going to redeem himself. And, and whether or not this is going to be a long-term thing, with Capriel on the bench, or at least till the summer, because they would surely sign somebody else to replace Casilla. But whether or not this is now going to be a, a permanent thing until the season finishes, I I don't know. But if it is, then you can say for certain that, that Casilla is, is done. Because he's not playing in the 23s, he's not on the bench, he's got no real reason to be here, has he? If he's not happy, what's the point? I mean, quite apart from the racism side. The money is why he's still here, essentially. Yes. I'm yeah. sure he, as Phil says, he's obviously not enjoying it. I'm sure he doesn't want to be here at all. I'm sure the club would rather he wasn't here. But equally, he's not willing to walk away from a very big contract and the club are not willing to pay him off a very big contract. Seems to be the likely position of it. And he's 34, so there aren't going to be many more moves left for him. And you know, I, I don't know how many takers there would be in Spain. Realistically, if you're signing him, he, he has to be coming in his first choice. Otherwise, why would you be committing that type of salary and, and committing to that that sort of financial investment? It seems to me that if if he's not in the the matchday squad, that there is absolutely no point in him playing in the the 23s, and unless it is to tick over and to stay fit to find something else, I think it's reasonable to expect him to play in the 23s if he's second choice, because that you know that is how you you keep fit and how you keep in shape. And as he was against Brighton, at some point he he, he might potentially be needed. But um, it was it was one of those odd decisions that made you think straight away of the Hernandez um situation and and the you know the the fact that. It was it would have been easy enough to have dressed that up and it would have been easy enough to have skirted around it. But when Bielsa sort of says to you, look, Casilla was fit, he was available, but I decided to pick Caprio. You know that there's more to this than purely, you know, a case of um, Caprio is my best second choice keeper. In terms of other players potentially moving on, Alioski, no contract signed. It looks like that one's coming to an end as well. Galatasaray, the rumoured destination, that one won't go away. And there's obviously quite a heavy weight attached to that name as a football club for reasons that are obvious. Certainly in Leeds, there is. He hasn't signed a new contract yet. Uh, they've been talking for a little while. I, I Those of us who do go to the games, I've seen a, a bit of a change in his body language. He looks to us, and we might be reading this wrong, but he looks a bit frustrated. He doesn't seem to have the same spring in his step or the same sort of exuberance that you always expected of Alioski. Things like Jani Cam and the, the jokes and the, the quips seem to have, have disappeared for now and it's a big decision for him because he's, he's 29 if he, he gets a decent length of contract here or somewhere else it'll take him into his mid-30s and his, his market value certainly in terms of wages is going to be lower at that point than it is now I wrote about the killings in Istanbul last year on the, the 20th anniversary and I spoke to a lot of the people who were involved you know directly involved family members and people who'd been at the club and the security guard Kevin and, and other people like that and it did get you closer to understanding how utterly appalling the whole thing was. And you knew that anyway, but it was it was only by hearing the stories and speaking to people and seeing how it was still affecting some of them 20 years on that you really understood the, the damage that had been done. And to take Harry Kuehl just quickly, Kuehl obviously went to, to Galatasaray. And I think the, the big difference with Kuehl was that he'd grown up at Leeds and he'd been in the academy for years and, and he'd built his career here and and he'd actually played in that game over there and he'd been around the club at the time you know the, the fallout while while they were in Turkey but in the, the two weeks afterwards and I read a, a while back now quotes from Nigel Martin criticizing Kuehl for taking that move and I understand where Martin's coming from and I think that's that's fair comment with Alioski 
he was like 25, 26 when he joined Leeds. He, he has no... He was about eight or nine, wasn't he, when this happened? Uh, absolutely, like, yeah. yeah. And he, he was, you know, he's born in Macedonia. He grew up in Switzerland, played in Switzerland before coming to Leeds. I think the cases are different. And I don't think forevermore you can say that any player who passes through Leeds should not be allowed to consider going to Galatasaray. I think anybody who des- decides on that basis that they don't want to is, is perfectly justified in, in doing so and has all the, the reason that they need. But I don't think you, you should correlate the two. And I think when it comes to Alioski, you have to accept that, that it's a professional decision for him. If if that is where he goes, I mean, he could he could go elsewhere. But if he does end up at, at Galatasaray, I don't think it should be taken as a slight on Leeds. I think it should be, just be taken as, as somebody making a, a decision that, that they think is good for their career. And I guess overall, we should be guided by the feelings and thoughts of the families as well. It's, you know, I understand there's a lot of animosity towards Galatasaray and Istanbul, the whole kind of general nebulous concept of it, to the extent that some people won't still go on holiday to Turkey because of what happened. But it would be wise, I guess, to be guided by the families rather than getting outraged on their behalf, if you know what I mean. I don't know if they would have a view on this. And to be quite honest, I, I wouldn't ask. I, I don't think it, it would be appropriate. But I spoke to Peter Ridsdale for the piece that I wrote last year and, and he was very measured about it, but at the same time, very critical of Galatasaray. And he said, he said, even to this day, I don't think the people who were involved at boardroom level, executive level at Galatasaray would accept that they did anything wrong in the handling of it. They would, would accept even that it was anything to do with them, that it was football related or it was, was Galatasaray related. It, it, there was a lot of poison there and it left a lot of bad blood and it, it hasn't gone away. But I don't think that's something that, that should be burdened on Alioski if he, he decides to go. I understand people disagree with that and there will be people who, who think differently and, and that's that's fine. But from my point of view, I think if you're, if you're looking at this case in comparison to say, as an example, another example, Harry Kuehl, I don't think you can see them in the same way. I don't think the background is the same. I don't think the politics involved um, is the same. And, and it might, as I say, it, it might be that, that ultimately he doesn't end up there anyway. Just returning to some of the stuff at West Ham then, set pieces, we can't get away from this fact that that needs addressing. I mean, Urente, we're not probably gonna, not going to do much transfer stuff with the defence, are we, over the summer? Because we've actually got quite a lot of bodies there. So what do we do about Urente not picking up his man in the system that he said he prefers man-to-man marking? I don't see how this will solve itself because I think the makeup of the team is in part to explain why it is that Leeds are so weak at, at set pieces. We've definitely dug into this previously, but statistically, they're not a good side aerially. If you compare the players at Leeds to players across the division in the same positions, they don't match up particularly well. And, and, that, and to an extent, that's deliberate because Bielsa is all about ball-playing footballers. He's about defenders who can bring possession out, can spread it around, can distribute the ball properly. It's like a conscious decision, but also with your your man marking, it it does run the risk that any time anybody loses anybody, so Llorente and and Craig Dawson on Monday, there's nobody to pick them up. And if you watch back when the goal is scored, Melier gets blocked off by Antonio, although Antonio just kind of stands his ground, so it's not as if it's a foul. Dawson gets a run. Llorente starts about three or four yards away from him, so by the, the time Dawson is going past him, he's picked up pace. Urenti can't reposition himself. It's quite clever from Dawson, actually. He heads for the front post, cuts to the back post, but it's an easy, easy finish. And it just seems as if Leeds might get caught out in that scenario endlessly, really. Mm. And, and and given that Bielsa isn't going to switch to zonal marking, and given that he is not going to go and sign somebody who is excellent in the air but can't actually do an awful lot with, with the ball, it's probably one of those um, crosses that we're going to have to bear, I think. Do you think VAR has killed man-to-man marking to an extent? Because the old-fashioned way of defending a corner was you'd pick a man and basically hold onto the shirt and then try and head it clear. So it was impossible for a man to get away from it. And referees, for the most part, just accepted that was part of the game. Whereas now, if something's going to get looked at, it feels like that's not not a viable option anymore. Yeah, super high definition, 60 frames per second, super slow-mo. Yeah, maybe. Uh, Bielsa talks a lot, actually, about... When when we analyse set pieces and we look at the weaknesses that people don't actually focus too much on infringements in the box or blocking or what he sees as obstruction or, or blatant fouls, and there's probably some truth in that. I haven't been aware this season of countless penalties being awarded for fouls from set pieces and you know corners in particular, and I've never really asked the question of whether players are, are more aware of that and and think about it more. VAR, it's, it's just an endless debate, isn't it? And endless issues with it and I, I said after Monday I mean as it happened the, the, the linesman flagged for the Roberts finish early on so that would have been disallowed in, in pre-VAR times anyway but 
it's almost pointless arguing about it because as it is, is going to be how it's going to be. Unless they move to the Dutch system whereby you start giving far more leeway in the lines that you draw across the pitch, decisions like that are just going to be constant because that's what it's there to do. So you either support VAR and accept it in that form or you oppose it. And personally, I'm not in favour. I haven't really been in favour at any stage since it came in and, and not an awful lot that's gone on with it has convinced me that that I should be. But it, it's pretty tiresome and, it, and it, it's very out of touch with the romance of the game to spend ages afterwards looking at these ridiculous graphics with lines across the pitch and the team who've scored or the team who've, who've benefited from it arguing that, yeah, that's offside, the team who haven't or the supporters of the team who haven't seen doesn't look offside to me. It's a waste of everybody's time. Infantino described it this week as it's something along the lines of an extra layer of adrenaline, didn't he? The, which I don't think is the experience of any actual well, football well, fan. Well, their speaks a governing body. I mean, if there is one thing that VAR isn't, it's adrenaline, isn't it? I mean, it's just, it, it's the polar opposite. And it's, remo- it's removed it all, hasn't it? And it's, of course it's, it has. It's, and it's kicked that can a few minutes down the road. I, I suppose the one advantage of not being in the grounds this season is that if it does get tweaked again next summer and if somehow it, it manages to improve to the point where people don't feel so irate about it and, and so aggrieved by it, then perhaps when crowds come back to Ellen Road next season, it, it won't impinge on things quite quite so much. But I mean, I have to say, when we sit in the press box, we don't get the same standard of replays that you get on the coverage with BT Sport or, or with Sky. We don't get, we, we aren't able to see the decisions in, in the same way. So you're absolutely in the dark, with the exception of following Twitter and seeing people tweeting the graphics that are coming up on the, on, on the, the TV coverage. You have to take it at, at face value. And I almost feel that taking it at face value would be a better, better solution to what we've got at the moment because then at least people would have nothing to argue over. But given how much controversy there has been, you know, that would that would just make it even more opaque. It's funny for the other podcasts we do, I've been watching watch-alongs and stuff of other opposition fans and watching a few decisions recently unfold. People go, oh, he's offside. Then it shows the first line and they go, oh, no, he's onside. Oh, no, he's offside. He's onside. No, he's onside. He is onside. And that sort of... And, and then they end up deba- it's no good for anyone, is and, it? Yeah, and they, de- they end up debating the merits of the technology and, oh, well, if we draw the line at that angle and, and that... It's like there's no objective standard applied to it where you can go, oh, that's right, or at least on the balance of probabilities, you know, like, that looks like it's offside. It's just well, well, crap, isn't it? Nobody ever fights over goal-line technology, do they? Ever. You never... Apart from when it doesn't work, as in someone hasn't turned it on, as was the case with the Sheffield United-Villa game, Everybody just accepts that if the ball comes down off the bar or, or looks like it's crossed the line and the referee gives it, you assume that the technology works because people actually trust it. I always remember watching a game, I think it was Jonathan Pierce was commentating and it was just after goal line technology had been introduced and they were showing the replays and they were showing the graphics of the ball and he was saying on the commentary, you can't tell if that's in. And your initial thought was, well, yeah, but hence the technology. You know, the technology tells you that it was um, and people have come to accept that. I agree that you you go back and forwards with these saying, oh, that looks on. Oh, no, that's probably off. That, mm, not really sure. And then you find yourself being subjective about it because you're going to lean towards your team, aren't you? If it's, if it's borderline, you're naturally going to say, well, that should have, should have been given. But deep down, I still feel that if you need to draw fractional lines to work out whether or not a player was onside or offside, then it should be onside because quite clearly the attacking player should be getting the benefit of the doubt. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Well, lots has been said and written about Leeds United's growth, the 49ers, so on and so forth um, in recent times. And Radrazani has his sights set on a, a network of clubs. Different owners at Leeds have had different priorities, it's felt like, across recent years. And we will come on to that shortly. But you've written about the, the multi-club model this week. So can you give us a little update of, of where we are, what we're looking at? Will it have any impact on fans, Phil? 
Yeah, it's not an entirely new concept, this, but it is growing. And, and I spoke to an expert in multi-club ownership who works for KPMG over in, in Budapest. And he was saying that because of the way the game's going and because of COVID pressures, without multi-club becoming prevalent, and, and multi-club is essentially where you have a, a group of clubs, collection of clubs who are owned by the same people, you know, so the same people invest in the City Group, for example, City Football Group. They are the best example of that. They've got Manchester City, who are the, the kingpin of that, but they are investing in, in almost every single market across the world. They've got 10 clubs in the group. They've got a separate partner club, Bolivar in Bolivia. People will know about the Red Bull group as well, and the, the clubs in, in Europe, Leipzig and, and Salzburg, who they've raised to a very competitive level. Uh, but they have clubs in Brazil and they have club in, in the USA as well. And, and there's a kind of driving force behind that, which is commercial. And, and obviously the huge commercial interests at, at Red Bull with the City Football Group, there are you know there are footballing aims there, footballing ambitions, but it, but equally they're moving into markets like Mumbai and and so on, where you know there is money to be made if if you can tap into the people there and if you you can make football spread with Leeds and with Radrazani and and from listening to what he says, his interest is far more in football, you know the football side of um, of multi club and and multi club essentially has three aspects to it. You, you have the commercial advantages, you have the ability to share knowledge. So for example. Watford and Udinesia, both owned by the Pozzo family in Italy, they have essentially one scouting team. There are rare exceptions round about, but they have one scouting team um, to do the, the scouting for Udinesia and for, for Watford. It's a combined strategy. The same people will do uh, set-piece analysis, for example, for Udinesia and Watford. There's a crossover there, so you can you know, you know can save money in the sense of the, the number of staff that you need to employ and, and the general headcount. Because Radrazani would almost certainly be looking at investing in smaller clubs than Leeds or Leeds with, with a lower profile than Leeds, there's not necessarily a huge advantage to Leeds United of having a share of services, you know, and, and a share of, of expertise. But there are big advantages or potentially big advantages when it comes to transfers and particularly the, the change to the rules post-Brexit, what you can do and, and what you can't and, and how you're able to sign players in the UK. There are big advantages to be had there if you do it right and, and if it if it works for you. And I think to compare to previous ownerships, we've gone from a point where Leeds didn't own the stadium, didn't own the training ground, didn't seem to have any means of buying either back and were, to all intents and purposes, a floating mid-table club to a point where they're, they're back in the Premier League. Everything seems to ex- be expanding. They've got plans for the stadium, for a new training ground, but also the, they are thinking quite seriously about branching out into the purchase of and, and investment in other clubs in, in Europe. And it, it is a, it's a very different world to what we've been used to. Does it get the pulse racing, Michael, from a fan's point of view? As a general principle, I don't particularly like the idea of it. I, I think it's for the good of the game if clubs are independent. And the more you centralise power into the likes of Man City and Red Bull, I feel like the, the more it is, is likely to be a drain on smaller clubs who essentially want their fans of those clubs want to be independent, I would imagine. I would think it's it's very unlikely, unless they're in a financial position where it's essentially going to shut if they don't get investment. I think most clubs and fans of clubs want to be in charge of their own destiny. And the idea that we can buy a club in, I don't know, the Spanish second division and then go in there and just wrench out all of their best players and there's nothing they can do about it. It feels, it feels slightly uncomfortable to me. I would rather it wasn't a thing. But then it's one of those things because everyone else is doing it, you put yourself at a competitive disadvantage by not. It is a tough one. I would rather everyone stopped. I know what you mean. It almost cements the hierarchy, doesn't it, if you start doing stuff like that. And that's the antithesis of what football's about, which is about being able to move up and down and succeed and fail. You, know? you can reach the point where essentially the club at the top of the pyramid of, of clubs you own has access to maybe a couple of hundred players, which isn't particularly fair. That's not how football clubs feel like they should operate to me. The expert I spoke to at KPMG, a guy called Antonio Di Ciani, he made that point. He said the downside of it is that you have to convince the supporters of every club involved in the group that they're being, if not quite treated equally, that the the club is not being neglected um, and that it is getting proper focus and and that it is being looked after properly and, and that it is being run with some level of ambition. The thing to look at in terms of the the upside is that since Brexit, the rules have changed to the extent where you cannot now buy or, or sign under-18 players from abroad. It's forbidden. There doesn't seem to be any way around that. You also have to qualify now for um, a visa uh, if, you, if you're coming into the country, if you're over 18 and, and you're signing for a club. And, and for players at the, the top level who are regular internationals and have a track record of, of playing for top or prominent European sides, 
it's not difficult to meet that. You need to fulfil a criteria where you score 15 points. And if you score 15 points or above, you you get your work permit, no questions asked. So Rodrigo de Paul, for example, would be fine. Rodrigo de Paul would almost certainly cruise in without having gone through the numbers. And I know you will have gone through the numbers. And if you haven't, I know you'll be home straight after this to go through the numbers. <laughs> he's, he's, got, he's got 20, never mind 15. I, I scored him 100%. <laughs> yes, he's, uh, he clears the bar by by an absolute mile. But he, he almost certainly would. And it's not designed to keep out players like that but once you start to get further down the scale and and once you start to have a recruitment strategy like for example Leicester where you try to, and, and actually you know Leeds looking at Wren and Rafinha slightly less fashionable markets or slightly less fashionable clubs or players who aren't quite as much on the radar then you need to be a little bit cute with it so if you have a club in say Belgium or, or Portugal it's a way of signing players who are under the age of 18 who you can can hold there it's also a way of scoring points for players who literally need, in, in some cases, one appearance on a team sheet for a club in the right division to score 12 points towards the 15 and put them on the threshold of, of clearing it. So essentially there are loopholes there and, and workarounds. And it means that very, very good players who don't quite match the criteria, but who you really want to invest in and want to sign, mm. potentially can come over because there are ways of ways of doing things that tick the right boxes for your work permit people. So at the moment, people talk a lot about Portugal and Belgium being attractive markets for you know multi-club plans because they don't count as tier one divisions. Um, obviously, they, they are your, your major leagues, the Premier League, Serie A and um, La Liga and, and so on, the Bundesliga, but they are tier two. So if you can get a player into Portugal or into Belgium and they play, or they, they get themselves on the team sheet, top division, they will get 12 points automatically and they will be borderline at the stage of being able to sign for your club. So it's all quite convoluted and it's all part of a bigger game potentially and you can take your view on whether or not it's something a a club should be bothering with. But if these Brexit rules are going to hold and if Leeds, for example, do think that it's to their benefit to be recruiting heavily from Europe, not just at senior level, but at academy level, for example, then, then it is a way of doing it. And I suppose there are moral and, and ethical aspects to this like what Michael said about do, do clubs get treated properly <laughs> football noted for its ethics and its morals of course it is you see yeah absolutely so nobody's going to lose much sleep over that or at least not the people with the money but if you read Radrazani's quotes about multi-club he always says I see this as being a, you know a, a football thing I don't see this as being a huge commercial enterprise I, I, he doesn't talk much about the share of skills between clubs but I think they can see that there is if it happens. And I think they're a long way from, oh, I say a long way from doing this. When when he's spoken about it, he's always said, that, like, I've got ideas and I've looked at clubs and I've looked at markets and so on, but there's nothing concrete at the moment. I don't think this is going to be an overnight development, but it does seem like something he's very set on. What is then, I mean, it seems like an obvious question, but what is the overall focus, goal of Radrizani and the 49ers? We can obviously see that they're set for growth with Leeds United. They want to aim towards the, the top six development of team alongside infrastructure we're just saying how do you think that contrasts with some of the people who've gone before blame me <laughs> i think a little bit like the city football group it strikes me as highly unlikely that there would be any multi-club structure which leads and now is a premier league club are involved in that would not have them as the biggest club in it people will know that there are issues as well with clubs owned by the same people competing in the same UEFA competition. So you have to be a little bit careful about that, but we would be be getting ahead of ourselves by talking along those lines. They will, well, they quite clearly want to improve the stadium significantly. Um, Radrazani's kind of ultimate aim football-wise, our realistic aim seems to be Europa League qualification. I I certainly think they will keep the team ticking over and it it seems to be the intention in the summer to to make more signings and to make the, the, the 18, the 20 stronger than it is at the moment, which I definitely think would would be a good move. I think at some point, and he was talking about five to seven years, I think at some point Radrazani will exit this. You know, I don't think he's going to be Leeds United's owner forever. And I've wondered right from the start, really, whether the ultimate transition will be a deal that has the the 49ers or 49ers Enterprises as outright owner of Leeds. And and I could certainly see that happening, but I think it'll be be fairly distant. In the meantime, in order for them to thrive, they have to be a strong Premier League club. And I think in order to be a strong Premier League club. They they need a good team and they need a, a quality head coach. And that penny seemed to drop a couple of years ago and I, I suspect they'll stick to the strategy. No in-house radio stations or nightclubs under the East stand? No, well, the mighty radio leads um, have got the, the broadcast rights I saw this week for another 
another three years to know getting rid of Popey or Johnny Buchan. Um, but no, I don't think I don't think radio stations will be high up the agenda. Yeah, and when you think back to the Bates era, it always felt like there was more of a focus on the property development and then making the noises that you wanted the team to be successful or go for promotion, but never resourcing it appropriately. Interested um, just to get you to expand on that. Why do you think Radrazani won't stick around? Because he says so himself, really. It's not that he's saying, look, I'm, I'm definitely off, but he said at the outset, I'll be here for you know, a five-year plan if it hasn't worked by that point and it took him three. But if it hasn't worked by that point and we haven't been promoted, um, I'll go and somebody else will have to, to take it on. There'll have been a financial aspect to that without any doubt. And you know, we, we know from the money that's come in from the 49ers, some of that has gone towards, not all of it, but some of it has gone towards paying back loans that, that Radrazani gave to the club to fund, you know, basically to fund the wage bill every month. And you were asking about how it compares to, to previous owners. The reality of the championship, and this has been the truth for a long time now, is that it's a loss-making league. So if you're in it, you have to be prepared to take a financial hit. And often the only way to mitigate that or to, to deal with it is for your owner, your majority shareholder, to pick up the tab in, in one form or another, which is what Radrazani has done. Some of it by equity purchases and buying new shares, some of it by loans. Like Kinnear used to say to us, he, Radrazani would have to loan a million to a million and a half pounds a month to cover the wage bill and that was because they pushed the wage bill as high as they could in, in order to try and get promoted and it was a gamble obviously but it was a kind of calculated one and, and it, it paid off pretty spectacularly but he does always give you the the impression that he's not rushing to get out the door but ultimately he sees this as a sort of I guess a, a time in his life where this is his it's kind of baby this is this is his focus and when we interviewed him in Paragmarati after the the latest Forty Niners investment was um, was announced, he, he's, he did say, you know, I'll not be going anywhere. I don't see myself getting out of this at any stage soon. But he was talking very much about three to five years to see definite improvement, five to seven years to to kind of make sure that you're regularly in contention to qualify for for the Europa League. So I think when all said and done, it, it could be a, a decade of of Radrazani here. But I would be surprised if in 20 years we're still talking about him as you know majority shareholder at Leeds, despite the fact that he is only in his 40s. What do you think this regime has got right? And I'll steer this one towards you, Michael, because things feel pretty good right now, don't they? That all that kind of white knuckle stuff that we've had a lot across the last decade and a half seems to have receded somewhat now and things are pretty, pretty calm and it's quite exciting actually, isn't it? And it feels like we've come a long way in a long time, in a short time, sorry. I think football first, it goes back to radio stations and nightclubs under the East Stand and hotels and casinos. It's always felt like there's been something else has been the main the main focus at Leeds for a lot of years, whether it was something as stupid as Rod Stewart playing a concert. like That was all we heard about for, for months on end because there was nothing to talk about on the football pitch. Then all of a sudden, it was it took Reggiani a while maybe to get the full measure of Leeds, I think. That first season of picking up some more speculative, cheap options Christensen as manager, then the whole move into Heggingbottom and stuff that that didn't work. But then there seemed to be quite a clear line drawn of, well, let's just invest in a manager. I mean, it's it's interesting to know what, how it would have gone for him if he hadn't found Bielsa. If Bielsa had had another job or not fancied this, if he would have been able to find anyone else even vaguely like him who could have done anything like the same job, I'm not a hundred percent sure. The only thing I would say is that I spoke to Alter earlier today, actually, for something else that I'm writing, and we got into talking about Rodrigo uh, de Paul. Absolutely, he, he said. <laughs> pass, he, Was he, he with said, him at the time? He, yeah, he said pass on his regards to Dan. So, <laughs> so since I'm here, he said that at the end of that first season, he said to Radrazani, he said there was a, a sort of medium term plan in place, you know, and and you remember that from when Radrazani bought in the idea that this will be a bit slow and steady, but it will take us there. And Arthur said that, that he said to Radrazani at the end of that first season, this isn't a medium-term club. We have to attack this in the way that you would attack things at a club who expect to get promoted tomorrow. And that's not to say that we have to be rash about it and to be reckless in trying to get promoted tomorrow. But we need to push the boat out a bit. You know, we, we need to we need to attack it in a different way. And, and ultimately, you can have this strategy if you want, but it probably needs to be at another club. If you've got this club, you probably need a, another strategy. So I don't really like to think about what would have happened if they hadn't got Bielsa. I, I think if they hadn't got Bielsa, they would still have taken a very, very different direction with, with the head coach and it might have worked, it might not have worked and, and we'll never know. But the focus on football is, is definitely right. And I, I think what you have to do and what they've done well, certainly from the, the Bielsa summer onwards, is to work on the infrastructure and to do the infrastructure work and to improve Thorpe Arch and to, to make changes to the ground and, and everything else roundabout and, and improvements. But not to bang the drum about it in a way 
where you expect the supporters to get excited about the biggest conference centre between Manchester and Newcastle. And, that, and that's, and, what, and that's that, exactly what Bates did, wasn't it? Yeah. But that's the about thing. About the stuff see. none of us really care about. It's good, some of it, but we don't care about so, so it. So you turn up on Saturday and Leeds lose to Brighton in the 15th um, in the Championship. And then you get told the next week that you, you know, the club's progressing and you've got the biggest conference centre this side of China. And it's not that that stuff isn't important and it's not that those things don't enhance the club, but you need to tap into what it is that people love about football. And that is a head coach like the one who's here, a team like the team as they played in the championship and have played in the Premier League. Now under him, players like Rafinha, players like Calvin Phillips, players who you genuinely never want to see leave the club and and if you if you latch onto that and if you can make people dream about that sort of stuff then you find that you have a waiting list of season tickets that's 20,000 long because people are desperate to get in the door and mm. you you have a cap of 23,000 which gets hit every summer without fail i mean the, the reality now is that i think if leeds had a 50,000 seat stadium tomorrow and crowds were allowed back in i think it would sell out i do think it would and it is only 10, 15 years since you had 16,000 turning up for Wolves in the in the championship. And I just always felt right the way through, there was the issue of the fact that Radrazani is really the first owner who's been willing to tolerate the fact that you had to make losses to go anywhere in the championship and that in order to make those losses, the money was going to have to come from you. I know GFH built up huge loans in the club <laughs> But they were here for such a short period of time and so much of it was a shambles that it was never it was never going to achieve anything. I just think, as Michael said a, a moment ago, I, I just think realising that you need a firm focus on football and also from the outside, the perception has to be that you, you focused on football. I think that that makes a huge difference and it's not the be all and end all, but it's a good start. Let me just get the clickbait headline right then. So Phil Hay agrees with Peter Ridsdale, says living the dream was right. Uh, correct, yeah. And, um, and there'll be some about Rodrigo de Paul after this as well. Hello listeners, sorry to interrupt your show, but we've got a small favour to ask. We're currently doing a bit of a survey to find out more about you, your podcast listening habits and the sort of adverts that are most relevant to you. If you feel like helping, please head to surveymonkey.com slash r slash athletic audio UK. That's pretty catchy, so I'll say it one more time. Surveymonkey.com slash r slash athletic audio UK. Thank you. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And via the magic of editing, we've straddled Marcelo Bielsa's press conference and the details of which will be out there in the ether already reported on Twitter, but a little bit spiky today. I'd say he was, yeah. Um, but short to start with, um, got going towards the end. Injury-wise, what we're looking at, um, strike still out um, along with Hernandez as well. Phillips and Rodrigo, both fine. After the West Ham game, they obviously played and, and have had no problems after that. Jamie Shackleton fit as well. And it sounds like um, Robin Koch will play for the 23s probably on Monday. So, you know, he is getting very close. And as you found with Berardi, if, you, if you're if generally fit and in good shape, it, it won't be too long before you're back. I, I mean, the, the one of the really interesting points was about Casilla and we were always going to follow that up after Monday night and him missing the West Ham game. It was a little bit lost in translation, I, I felt. Bielsa seemed to be implying that between either the media or the press office at Leeds, there'd been a crossing of wires in which he'd either read reports or somebody had said that Capriel had been picked on the basis of form or performances for the 23s. Bielsa wasn't saying that he hadn't been picked on that basis, but he basically said, I don't explain these decisions. I won't explain these decisions. I said that Casilla was fit and was available and wasn't wasn't picked. That was the truth. That's as much as I'm going to say. Leave it at that. And we did... You know, a couple of people did go back and sort of ask him again, and 
he was asked whether or not Caprio would be a long-term pick on the bench. He didn't get into that. Um, there really was no detail about why exactly Casilla had been left out. But I mean, my assumption would be, and you know, we'll hopefully find out a bit more about this, but that the, there must be an issue with Casilla of, of some sort because it seems, whether it's how he's training or whether there's something going on in, in his personal life, he said um, after the, the message on Instagram, along the lines of when I leave, I won't come back. I stick around trying to make things work, but eventually if it doesn't happen, I, I'll, I'll go. He said when people asked him about that or made a, a fuss about it, that it was to do with personal issues in his life take that at face value, perhaps that's the case. But suffice to say, something has convinced Bielsa that it should have been Caprio on the bench or perhaps, to put it another way, something has convinced him that Casillas should not have been in his squad on Monday. We will watch it with interest. You get the feeling that you're not going to see this one play out properly until the summer, maybe. Um, Rodrigo's an interesting one. Is he going to be back in the side, do you think, against Chelsea? I think he'll be tempted. I think he'll be tempted. I mean, he, he gives a lot of support to Roberts, does Bielsa. He sticks with him. I'm in the on the side of the fence that is yet to be convinced that Roberts is going to be a long-term success at Leeds. I, I don't see the consistency there and you don't ever feel that concerted stretch of form that makes you think he's he's really settling into the team. And I, I do think at his best, Rod- Rodrigo has been considerably better as, as he was always likely to be. And I do think if he can get himself into... You know, really consistent running the team. He's he's going to be he's going to be a quality signing. You know, he, he will be will be a really really good player. I think he might do. I, I think he'd be tempted to get him in. I mean, they they need full armory really against Chelsea. Chelsea are a very very good side, strong side. I think better side will be a better side with Tuchel as manager rather than Lampard. And there are not a lot of easy games falling this season. Actually, they're, they're in this period they've got Fulham away coming up, which would be tricky because they're in form. Sheffield United at home looks winnable, but then you get into the run of City, Manchester United and, and Liverpool. So the only points from from somewhere, this will be tough, I would say. I predicted on the Square Ball podcast, our best hope lies in the chaos factor. I think that mad stuff has happened this season and that's about it. I mean, because based on a, you know, sort of a head-to-head battle, which we saw earlier in the season at Stamford Bridge, they should win hands down, shouldn't they? Well, they're slightly different under Tuchel and, and he is tweaking them, but some of the, the same principles are there. I mean, they pass and they pass under him. They 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 try to pass teams to death. I was looking at the stats because I was watching them against Everton before Leeds played West Ham and, and they came up with just over 700 passes in that match. You think of Leeds as a team who dominate the ball and are constantly spreading it about. They tend to average sort of 500 to 520 a game, something like that under Bielsa. So you can see the, see the extreme levels that they're going to under Tuchel but they still like transitional play and they still like that that little move where they've got players out wide and they have a lot of width through the, the fullbacks, um, Chilwell and, and James but then they have people like Werner up front who can obviously stretch it as well and, and they love those little periods of play where they can around about halfway they can set set the hairs running down the wing and catch you on the back foot get in behind you um, and they, they do have do have an awful lot of quality and I, I still feel that that's probably as good a opposition performance as we've seen Chelsea at Stamford Bridge they were really strong on the night and they got the tactics pretty much perfect and, and pretty much spot on and, and I don't expect them to be significantly worse this time round Do you think they're the best side we've faced this season? Um, I thought Man United were very good in going forward when we faced them that, that's the game where it felt like the opposition were going to score every time they went forward but they, they aren't like that normally it seemed like that was a bit of an anomaly for Man United I think Chelsea, yeah, they were they were very strong, and it was a game that I know we we did score in it, but truthfully we didn't particularly deserve to. There weren't many chances in it for us, and they could have probably added one or two more. I don't see anything for us in this game. I've got to be honest. We seem we're just about out of form ish. I don't know. We've been we've been kind of unlucky, but we've not been winning games, mm-hmm. and people like Rodrigo not still fully fit, not up to speed. I feel like we it would need all of our players to play at their absolute peak to get anything from this. That's where I wonder if the chaos factor might come into it. Leads this season. We've never been out of form for too long, so we're overdue a win. So why not on Saturday against Chelsea? But also the say in his press conference as well. Just what Michael said there that the dice haven't kind of rolled in the right way at the points in games where Leeds deserve something or needed a, a touch of touch of luck. Bielsa clearly feels that they've actually played pretty well through this this run. And even though it's five defeats from seven, somebody at the end of the press conference said to him, "You know, what, does that run concern you?" And he said, well, if I, if I deal with it at face value, then I can't say anything else. You know, yeah, it does worry me, you know, five out of seven. But he kind of made the argument that you need to dig deeper into the individual matches and you need to analyse whether or not you deserve to lose each game, whether you played as well as you can or, or close to as well as you can or, or whether you're 
your performance really dipped. And and he evidently thinks that they're in pretty reasonable shape at the moment. The, the results as a sort of bigger picture over four or five weeks, perhaps not great, but I think he's pretty content with how they're playing. There is a question that kind of flows from that then, which is how do Leeds find more consistency? Because we either win or lose. We don't really draw, do we? So first of all, how do we how do we become harder to beat? I looked into the draws before the West Ham game and I had a feeling that he would be very low statistically in, in the number that he'd had um, in his time in charge. So we got opted to, with all the, the 20 Premier League clubs at the moment, to have a look at how many games they'd drawn percentage-wise in the period where Bielsa had been head coach. He's got 119 games, um, league games as manager at the moment. Uh, most of the clubs were on around about 102, 103 because they'd been in the Premier League and played fewer games a season. City under Guardiola are unbelievably low, drawn about 7% um, of the matches in, in that time. And, and obviously they they from time to time they, they do go on these ridiculous runs like 20, 21 wins on the bounce. Leeds are second in the list down at about 15%, which gives you some idea of how infrequently it is that they, they do draw games. And I think in, in the entirety of his time as manager, he's only had four nil-nil draws, Bielsa. I mean, they're just always goals in the game. You don't want to see them sacrifice wins for draws because that, in a lot of ways, is what gets you into trouble in the Premier League. And if you look at um, Fulham and, and Brighton, the reason that they're kind of anchored low down the table is because they've got a small number of victories and a large number of draws and it doesn't m- help you to make enough progress. But I think when you start to reach the point where you want to become established mid-table or upper half of the table or to get into Europa League qualification spots, the thing that you need to cut out is the the number of, of defeats. And I think whereas Leeds are very good at winning games, they're not actually that difficult to beat either. Or when I say they're not difficult to beat, there are a lot of teams who have beaten them this season and have taken three points against them. And that will be the thing that Bielsa... He spoke himself last month about wanting more consistency. And I think that will be the, the trick for him to find a way without compromising his tactics and his philosophy and the structure of the team to make them a little bit less flaky, you know, in the, in the way that it goes 0-0 to 2-0 in the space of eight minutes at West Ham. It goes 0-0 to to 2-0 in the space of not much longer at um, at Spurs and at Arsenal you're 4-0 down by the start of the second half Man United you're 4-0 down before you've even got to, to half time that's been counterbalanced by a lot of very very good performances and, and very very good wins and that's the thing about this Leeds team they can turn it on impressively but to evolve and, and to get better they're going to have to slowly or gradually start cutting out these games where it feels like it's all gone in the blink of an eye Nice to not have the Bielsa-Lampard narrative behind this one. Uh, does it feel like Bielsa, Tuchel is a little bit, I don't know, it's a bit more noble? It feels a bit more like elite football confrontation than bielsa Phil Hay slams Lampard. No, well, you see, I <laughs> I was never I was never as down on Lampard as, as a lot of people, which is not to say that I thought the way he handled Spygate was great because I didn't, but I think... He did a steady job at, at Derby. He did a half-decent job at Chelsea. I always felt at Chelsea that it was going to be a case of Lampard fills in for as long as they have the transfer ban and, and that to bridge that difficult period. And then at some point, the, the baton would pass on. And that's how it felt to me. Chelsea might say otherwise, but it, it felt as if Lampard was there for as long as he was useful. And then it, it was a case of, OK, who do we move on to, on to next? I, I mean, Tuchel was been in borderline the, the biggest job going in terms of finance PSG you know the hideous amounts of cash flowing around that club and, and a lot of pressure because of it and it does feel as if Chelsea are starting to with him are, are starting to maximise the quality of the squad now in a way that they weren't necessarily under under Lampard I think they're looking pretty good for Champions League qualification we, we were chatting about that with West Ham and I said to you I'm, I'm not certain that they'll get there West Ham because I think Chelsea might, might just have the legs on them and, and that'll probably probably be the case but this would be really interesting because you're talking about two coaches here who will 100% try to to dominate possession and you know the the tactics and in, in, to a large degree are, are absolutely predicated on that you've got to have the ball and Chelsea try to have even more of the ball now with Tuchel than they did on, under Lampard and it's going to be a right old squabble should be fun shouldn't it Lampard's basically just a pantomime villain isn't he he was a bit of a distraction I mean I say he's a distraction because he's had the better of us uh, on two quite notable occasions recently. So if it had been that we were able to laugh at him more, it would have probably felt more um, more of an entertainment than a distraction. But yeah, it's probably best that he's out of the way. Although as much as as you know, Tuchel is doing a good job, I'd kind of rather he wasn't doing quite as well now. <laughs> I kind of like him coming in and proving the point that he's a better manager and how well 
he can do with these players, but um, that's enough of it now. Yeah, we, we want Chelsea to be bad as, as exactly. funny as it was watching Lampard's demise. Yeah, yeah, absolutely get it. 28th match of the season, then we're rapidly getting into that, that final quarter, aren't we? And uh, we're getting to that time of year now where fixtures are piling up for these, you know, the, the clubs that are in the Champions League. They've got Atletico Madrid on Wednesday in the Champions League. So it makes me wonder, will we see maybe a little bit of tinkering around uh, our fixture where they, they have one eye on that? Possibly. Giroud's done well in, in Europe um, so far, but he was very good against Leeds back in December. I, I felt like he gave Llorente the runaround. It was, a, it, was, it was a bit of a hospital pass for Llorente. He'd only come back from injury. Koch obviously had the, the knee problem right at the start of the game, so Llorente was pitched in against Chelsea team who played really well. But you saw everything that Giroud's good at in that game, particularly the movement inside the box or on, on the edge of the box. He's, he's really dangerous like that. So... If two shows look back at that, which he almost certainly will have done, then it might be that he feels that um, that Giroud is is a good pick. But you're right; it's a really, really difficult game that against Atletico Madrid, and that tie is absolutely there to be won for them. So it may well influence his thinking. So how do we think this one's going to go then? Let's, let's assume Leeds are on a good day on Saturday. Uh, Michael, I know we know we we spoke about this, didn't we, a couple of days ago on the Square Ball podcast, and all signs point to an away win. But is there hope for Leeds? It's got to be hope. I can't see it, but. Phil, there's always hope. There's always hope. <laughs> but, but, um, but you know what? That that is actually very, very true. And I think our uh, friend Moscow White has made this point as well. And you might have said it as well, Michael, on on the Square Ball podcast. The fact that there is hope as a newly promoted side playing against Chelsea, who spent two hundred and fifty million quid in the summer, speaks volumes about how good we are. How Bielsa has done really, really well. How well the club have backed him to be in a position where we say there is hope. For sure, and it comes back to that same argument that's been going on all season about how well. Leeds should be doing as if in 11th place they're somehow falling short of the, the potential they have or the level that they could have reached with Bielsa. i tell you one interesting thing from the press conference today. We, I think I said earlier it's Bielsa's thousandth day in charge today. So he was asked, are you surprised that you've stayed so long? And, and then somebody else got onto the subject of, do you basically feel like you could stay at Leeds for as long as you feel like it? You know, which is a little sort of naive thought because that's never how it works and everybody, with a very few exceptions, run, runs into trouble eventually. But he said to us, he, he didn't really feel that he'd been a triumph, his word, so far, because they were promoted, but the team were that good that they should have been promoted. I mean, that was pretty much <laughs> what, what he said. It's the usual self-deprecation. But he also said, if we were 7th, 8th, ninth, 10th in the Premier League, then you could say that was a success. But we're not, and we haven't consistently been in, in that position. So you can't say this season's a success yet. They are in 11th, so we're, we're splitting hairs slightly. But I thought that was the first insight we've ever had, assuming he was being 100% genuine, into what he would see as a decent finishing yeah. percentage. He's never touched on that before. Sounds like a benchmark, doesn't it? That? Yeah, but he, he almost gave it away without thinking. It wasn't That wasn't the subject of the, the discussion. You know, what would you consider to be a good finishing position? You ask him that normally and he'll say to you, it's irrelevant in the sense that your league position doesn't necessarily reflect how well you're playing and I prefer to see how well we're playing as opposed to where we are in the table. But he did say, if we were 10th, 9th, 8th, 7th, you could say that's a success, but but we're not. I mean, they're, they're very, very close. It feels all right to me. I'm enjoying it. I don't know about you. I mean, I always thought at the start of the season to not be feel ever properly involved in a relegation scrap was the aim. And we haven't been so far, so that's fine. Yeah, keep that up for another few games and we can all properly relax. Equally, though, I'm glad that we have a manager who has aspirations beyond that, whereas you get the feeling Steve Bruce is actually quite pleased with Newcastle's position, which is not something I would I would like. That's true, is that? And that is, that is the point I was making the other week when we were talking about glass ceilings and, and what Sheffield United, and you pulled me up on it as if I was um, getting a little bit ahead of myself. But um, no, that's exactly it. We've got higher hopes than just swimming around 15th, 16th, 17th, haven't we? Yeah, he was saying a little while back, Bielsa, when we were talking about his contract, the reason that the club shouldn't sign me up now and the reason I shouldn't sign is because you never know what's going to go on towards the end of the season. And we all kind of chuckled at that because you thought to yourself, there's nothing that can conceivably happen in the back end of the season that's going to going to dissuade them. I mean, I was aware on Monday night after the, the defeat of people starting to get a little bit twitchy about, you know, the gap to Fulham and the fact that Leeds are away at Fulham soon. So somebody called it a six-pointer, which it genuinely doesn't feel like that to me. Uh, but the idea that Fulham only need to claw back nine, ten points and Leeds are going down is is only credible if you have it in your head that Leeds are not going to pick up another point before the end of the season. And that would involve losing about 10, 12 games on the bounce. And I suppose if that happened, then you would probably genuinely have some questions about 
what on earth was was going on. But they do feel really stable. And I think I did a piece in November after the Leicester game and they lost heavily saying, you know, the, the advantage of getting a good head start or getting going early in the league, getting points on the board, is that you do leave clubs behind you and you do create this gap and you do give you some breathing give yourself some breathing space. And that's been the, the biggest bonus of this season is that people are able to sit back in the main and, and feel pretty confident about it. And I think that goes back to what you said right at the very start of this podcast about why it is that you're maybe feeling that you'd like to get onto the summer now and see what changes and who else comes in and, and you know the signings that are made because it, it does feel as if for a good period of time now, they've been not necessarily safe, but pretty much there. Saturday lunchtime then, Chelsea at Ellen Road. One to watch, please. The person issue thing that we should keep an eye on? Well, two things. Llorente against Giroud again, because that was that was absolutely key or one of the, the key battles, but that will depend on, on both of them starting. The other thing is to look at the passing stats and the possession rates and, and the general level of dominance, because I think this is the, the probably a, a rare occasion at home where you could conceivably see the opposition dominating the ball and, and dominating Bielsa's team in that respect, as opposed to Leeds automatically doing it as they as they tend to. And I think if, if they can get on top of Chelsea in that sense and have a lot of the ball and a lot of the game, I, I do think actually there's something, you know, that is potential to get a result is is definitely there. But I have to say my, my head is saying a way win in this one. Well, we will watch with interest and let us know what you think. Tweet us at the Phil Hay Show. And in the meantime, subscribe to The Athletic for that special price, three ninety nine a month for six months at the moment. 40% off the full price of a sob. Analysis, in-depth features and the very best football writers around. Theathletic.com forward slash Leeds pod to take advantage of that. 40% discount. Theathletic.com forward slash Leeds pod. We'll see you next time. The Phil Hay Show. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic.